What a way to start thinking about Jesus this Christmas, huh? Yeah, it's almost an explanation of where we've been in Hebrews. He is the display of everything we've learned about through the entire Bible, which has been refreshed by the book of Hebrews, right? He's Melchizedek. He's our sacrifice. If you've been studying with us, whether you're in the chapel or online or whether you used to sit out in the, in the tent, there's something that's just struck us all about discovering Jesus in the Old Testament and that that God, that powerful God, would come to dwell among us. Do you remember we learned about the first eight chapters of Hebrews? We learned that Jesus is bigger and better, like you saw in that video, more breathtaking than anything God's revealed in the Old Testament. Then we learned that living as a Christian means realizing that what he's done for you means that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He's done it all for you. And Jesus plus anything, add a little Judaism, add a little good works, add a little bit of your own little effort, you've just diminished the power. Jesus plus anything is nothing. That's how you live as a Christian. And when you know you're pleasing to God, you want to please God, chapter 11. You pursue him and his rewards by faith. Then we learn that God disciplines us out of that love. He loves us enough to discipline us and correct us. We will live out our purpose as citizens of the great city of God. Which you're like, I don't remember the city of God. Well, I'll show you because this chapter is all about that. How do we live as citizens of the city of God while we're living in the city of man? Now he alluded to it once in chapter 11. Abraham waited for a city whose foundations the builder and maker was God. Last week, you've got an identity not just from a mountain, but from a city. You've come to the city of the living God. And now in this chapter, he's going to say, how do people from the city of God live in the city of man? How do we do it? How do you live out these new priorities? Cities are places of commerce. They're places of connection. They're places where people flourish. But one city is based on using power and might to exalt yourself. This other city is about using your power and might and money to serve others and help others flourish. To understand the theology of the city of God, we need to take you back to something that happened in Jeremiah. God has allowed his people to be torn away from Jerusalem, and then now deposit into the kingdom of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. A kingdom, a city that is about everything antithetical to what God had taught them. And they could have said, hey, wait for 70 years, we'll just hang on and we'll get out of here. Let's isolate ourselves from the Babylonians. They could have said, hey, we don't have a church, don't have a temple anymore, let's just imitate the Babylonians. But God tells them not to isolate and not to imitate, but to integrate. And here's what he says. I have caused you to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what I want you to do while you're here for 70 years. Build houses, dwell in them. Plant gardens, eat the fruit. Take wives, beget sons, beget daughters. And while you're there, seek the peace, the shalom of the city. The, the city, the Babylonian city that I caused you to be carried away to and taken captive. Pray to the Lord for the city. A Babylon, and it's peace, it's shalom, because it has peace, you have peace. 
That God has called us to pray for our city, pray for our towns, pray for our world, and work in a pluralistic society to create policies, to create principles that allow everyone to flourish. Now, this idea is picked up in 400 AD by a guy named Augustine who writes a book called The City of God. This is kind of a classic piece of of, uh, biblical theology. He's addressing a problem. Why is it that Rome got crushed? We got a, a, a Christian emperor in Constantine, and the barbarians came through and destroyed it all. And Augustine says you need to understand that there are two cities at war in the world. The city of man, and the Rome certainly represented that from Babel to Babylon. There are cities that crush others, push others away, are greedy, are just self-focused. And God will allow that city to be crushed. And he doesn't lose anything. That's not his city. Meanwhile, he wants his people to live out this eternal city, this gospel-centric city, the city of eternal things that serves people here on earth and serves people in heaven, the city of God. And today, with that kind of as a backdrop, our writer is going to tell people who are being persecuted, people who are being crushed, people who are going through a difficult time because they're Christians in Rome, he's going to say, here's three charters of this city that I want you to live by. And when you understand this, you're going to know you're an ambassador. Every day you have purpose. You're an ambassador of God's city to your neighborhood, to your family, to your community, and to your job. And you are to live in a cross-cultural way. And as our culture gets increasingly not just neutral toward Christianity, but antithetical toward Christianity, these principles and this purpose and this instruction is more important than ever. So what are those charters? (laughs) Well, the first charter is God says, I want you to radically love a city that will never love you in return. And that is so true. People just do not like what Christians stand for. They do not like our values. And they might like one piece of it, but not the rest of it. And he says, I want you to radically love a city that will never love you back. He begins by saying this, let brotherly love continue. And this word brotherly love is phileo love, friendship love, Philadelphia type love. I want my people to be known by their ability to befriend people who disagree with them. And we live in a culture today that's doing everything to divide us over every issue. But we are called to befriend, not tolerate, befriend people who disagree with us spiritually, religiously, politically, and otherwise. We are called to let brotherly love continue to flow through us. He then says, what does that look like? It means don't forget to entertain strangers. The word stranger, people who are foreigners. People, if you're a Jew, they're a Gentile. If you believe the Torah, they believe in Zeus. And when you show hospitality to strangers, you might unwittingly be entertaining angels. Really? That there's a connection between how you treat people and how you treat God. Remember, Jesus says it, what you do unto the least of these, you're actually doing unto me. Did you know how you befriend people, how you treat people, how you speak about people? The hospitality you give to strangers is actually how you're treating God. And I think the theology of Hebrews comes directly out of Genesis chapter 18. Because we see the strangers entertaining angels right out of this passage. In case you don't know it, I'll I'll put it on on the screen, but I'll just tell you the story. It says God shows up, but they don't know it's God. He shows up in the form of three men. It looks like just three strangers, three people, three foreigners. 
Abraham sees them and is like, oh, I can't wait to show hospitality to strangers. So he runs out, good to see you. Can I water your camels? What can I do for you? You want a meal? We'd love to provide a meal for you. He runs home and like every wife's worst nightmare, honey, we got company in 12 seconds. Make a meal. And she says, this is a wonderful opportunity. I love showing hospitality to strangers. So she pulls out the best flour, the fine flour that has to be ground over and over and over and over hours. This is very costly. She then uses three measures of fine meal. That's 60 pounds of flour. This is a feast. And they bake it and they provide this to these strangers. Then the strangers reveal that they're not just strangers. They're actually angels from God. One of them probably is Jesus himself, the angel of God, and tells them a promised child is coming. You see, when you show hospitality to strangers, you may be entertaining angels unaware. That's what Hebrews is saying. The second thing he says is that that brotherly love, that phileo love, that friendship love, it's to be shown by remembering prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. And all through history, you see Christians at the forefront of fighting against slavery and fighting for the handicapped and fighting against infanticide and fighting for those who would, who would throw away children. That you treat Every single person as if you were that person. There is no room in Christianity for, for viewing people based on their race. Because you wouldn't want to be viewed based on your race. By mistreating people or being unjust toward people. So all through the Bible and all through history, you see Christians at the forefront. Of bringing the city of God, justice for all, a color blindness, a kindness. A, a go, in, even in our city, you'll see Christians at the forefront of the Freedom Center. Our city gospel are visiting those who are in prison. I've had the opportunity to go with some people from our church. Talked to a guy recently who visited with a, a sister who was in jail. And though she was facing consequences of what she had done, he said, I'm here with you and I want to befriend you and just know I'm not going to leave you alone. I've sat with people in some of the most embarrassing, scandalous moments of their life. And I'm one of the few people who called, or one of our pastors called. But I remember a few times I said, listen, I don't know what the future holds for you, but I'm going to be your friend through this. You can count on me. And I want you to know you're not alone. We need to know that God is with us, and that often shows up by Christians being the tangible act of God with you in the midst of it. And to do that in a way that makes our whole city flourish. People have bought companies and brought them here to Cincinnati. We have people here in our church who brought the World Choir Games and brought them to Cincinnati. We have people who had mental health issues and couldn't find the right resource. So they brought mental health services to this city. People say, it doesn't matter what you believe. I want this city to be a place that people flourish. A place of brotherly love. Where we remember those who are mistreated and those caught in generational poverty. And we want to be part of the solution. It's why when you've come in the last couple of weeks, you've got to see our giving tree. We've been connecting our giving this Christmas season to the, to, to the partners we have here locally with Happy Church and Interparish Ministry and Gospel, City Gospel Mission. For the next couple of weeks, the giving you do on that tree is going to help us with our international partners, back-to-back and, and Belize partners. It's the stuff we do year-round, but this is an opportunity to help show brotherly love to the world. 
And our culture needs brotherly love more than anything. We are taught almost daily how to hate one another, not to befriend one another. I saw an interview this week by two Princeton professors. One is a free market uh, conservative, and the other is a socialist. And they debate every potential policy you've ever heard of. But what strikes you is not their arguments, it's their friendship. The two guys you haven't heard before are Robbie George and Colonel West. Here's what Robbie says about his friendship with this socialist fellow Princeton professor. Friendship is fundamentally volitional. It's willing the good of the other for the sake of the other. Where we fail is when we lose track of the other person's humanity. Colonel West says this, I love this brother, that conservative free market guy who's not a socialist. Love is never reducible to politics. Just like friendship is never reducible to political agreement. You learn how to revel in someone's humanity. We as Christians should be known as friendly people, joyful people, brotherly love people. That's the first charter. Now, the second charter mixes two things. <laughs> Faithfulness of body and generosity of finances. And this is such a unique combination he puts together here. That when you're living out the city of God and the priorities of God, you pursue faithfulness of body and generosity of finances. He says this. He goes, the Bible has a very unique type of relationship it esteems, and that's called marriage. And I want marriage to be honorable, esteemed, valued, or held up among all. And part of esteeming the biblical view of marriage is that your, your marriage bed goes undefiled. You don't bring other people into that bed. And fornicators and adulterers, God's going to evaluate. God's going to judge. And, you know, God's view of marriage is really unique. It's one man and one woman in a covenant relationship for life, choosing daily to adapt and sacrifice to the other person because that's what Jesus did for you. And did you know everything about that's always been countercultural? Every piece of it? When the culture was about polygamy, people didn't like the one and the one, one man and one woman. And the Bible was very countercultural. When, when people would marry someone just because they want to make a, a, a family connection in the caste system in Rome, but they had lost of mistresses, they didn't like the idea that you should save yourself sexually for marriage and not have kind of other women or men on the side. That was countercultural. Today it's countercultural that it's a man and a woman. It's countercultural today that you should save yourself for marriage. That God has a vision of, of physical intimacy that starts with covenant and says, because God is faithful to me, I want to be faithful to my spouse. But if I'm single or single again, I also want to be faithful to my future spouse because God is faithful to me. It's a beautiful moment when I was in junior high. I had a Sunday school teacher named Scott and he had just got back from India sharing the gospel with um, the brothels in India. And he told a story I'll never forget. He said, yeah, I camped this brothel. I was sharing the gospel with this woman. She was kind of working her booth, and it was kind of a slow time. And she said, hey, I, I got a little time. Do you want to kind of come in for a freebie? He's like, no, no, I appreciate the generosity, but no thanks. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to do that to my wife. She said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you were married. I thought you said you were single. And Scott said, I am, but I don't want to be unfaithful to my future wife. That was such a beautiful idea to me, that the Bible isn't against something, it's for something. It's for faithfulness prior to marriage and in marriage. 
But there's another part that's countercultural. The idea of sacrificing and adapting to meet the needs of someone else. I know people who've been married 50 years and we have a big 50-year ceremony. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I would never want that relationship. They hate each other. They make marriage look miserable. They got the commitment part down. But man, is that a miserable experience. And maybe God's challenging you to have marriage esteemed by loving each other better, serving each other better, being kind to one another. Hold the marriage bed and esteem marriage honorable among all. And then he combines this weird thing. He goes from that to, oh, and by the way, besides being faithful with your body in marriage, I want you to be generous with your finances if these are connected. Let your conduct in this world, don't be covetousness. Don't covet other people's wives. Don't covet other people's stuff. In fact, the people of God, what's going to be a charter of their city is they live from a place of contentment. Be content with such things as you have. You live from a place of contentment. Why? Because you know Emmanuel, God is with us. You know that God said to you, I will neither leave you nor forsake you. You walk through life with a deep sense that you have God's presence. And that is why the the historian Josephus said, what allowed Christianity, the city of God, to turn the Roman Empire upside down is that the Christians... They handled their bodies and their money totally different from the Romans. The Romans were generous with their bodies <laughs> and all their orgies and stingy with their money. Their caste system was all based on their money. No one gave anything to anything, Josephus says. And while the Romans were generous with their bodies and stingy with their money, the Christians were stingy with their body, only passionately giving themselves in the context of marriage. But they were really generous with their money. In fact, let me tell you what the Emperor Julian said about the Christians. He said, when it came about that the poor were neglected, he's talking about the pagan poor, not Christians. When the poor in Rome were neglected by our pagan priests, then I think the the, the Galileans, those Christians, observed that we had poor among us, and they devoted themselves to philanthropy. They, the Christians, supported not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. And the culture began to gravitate toward Christianity because they were so generous and kind toward the poor. Generous with their wallets. That's charter two. The third charter is that the city of God combines two things that don't often go together. A teachable spirit and an absolute commitment to truth. Often you people who are all about the truth, and man, are they self-righteous, and man, are they arrogant. Man, you don't want to spend any time with them because they know exactly what you should do. Other people are very teachable, and they are just wishy-washy. I mean, whatever you believe, it's all fine. Christianity is this beautiful connection of teachability and truth. As John says about the gospel message, when Jesus came and was born in the manger, he was full of grace, and he was full of truth in perfect combination. Here's how he tells us to be teachable, to be submissive, to be people under authority. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Whatever they take away from me, I have everything I need. My treasure's in heaven. But I want you to remember those who rule over you. Those who have spoken the word of God to you. Think about your leaders, the people you're in authority under. Be teachable. Be submissive. Be easy to lead. Be a great follower 
May your spiritual, political, and relational bosses say, I need five more people like that. They are just so flexible. They are so committed. They don't compromise the truth, but they are so easy to work with. Remember those who rule over you. Be teachable. Be submissive. Know how to be people under authority. And to those faith who follow, consider the outcome of their conduct. Think about your boss's perspective. Think about your leader's perspective. And the reason you're able to do that is because Jesus is the same today, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Jesus was submissive to his Father. Not my will, but yours be done. We live. He submitted himself to death, even death on a cross for you and I. And we live with that same sweet spirit of teachability and openness to correction Openness to other people's perspective. But not just teachability, also truth. None of that makes you compromise truth. He goes right on to say, and don't be carried away with the various or the diverse, is what it means in Greek, or strange doctrines. And the word strange is the same word for strangers over here. Those Gentile doctrines, those foreign doctrines. Don't be carried downstream by all these beliefs about yourself, about the world, or about God that the Romans are teaching you. They're teaching you that sensuality doesn't matter. They're teaching you that you should hold your money to yourself, or teaching you that the gods are angry at you, or teaching you that it's okay. I don't want you to be carried about by these strange, different, non-biblical doctrines. It's a commitment to truth. That's what doctrine is. It's what's true about God, true about you, and true about the world. So won't you be committed to truth? For it's good that your heart, while you're committed to truth, is established by grace. Look at this idea. You're committed to both grace and truth. And most of us do one of them very well. Right? You're really good at the grace. Oh, but it's the conflict of the truth you don't like. It sounds really good at truth. Really good at grace. A good example of that is going to the dentist. The dentist, if you're really going to get work done, requires the drill and Novocaine. In fact, I remember going to Chicago uh, when I lived in Chicago uh, during college, and I went and got some dental work done. And I had horribly brushed my teeth when I had uh, braces. So I had like three root canals I had to have done. And when doing this serious work, the first thing they bring out, I'd never seen it before, is this this spring-loaded contraption. And if you've never seen this before, they put it in your mouth, and then, <laughs> you're standing like this. And then he wants to have a conversation with you. So what's the problem, sir? Oh, the hearts are here. Are here? No, are here. I, I can't understand what you're saying. I have a right here. Could work on that. And then what's he do? He pulls out the drill. And he pulls that thing out. And my, if he's digging in there, he's getting to the problem. That's some truth. And some of us, we brought a problem to somebody. We brought an idea to somebody. They don't listen to us. They haven't listened to what the problem is. They haven't listened to our perspective. Drill, 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 drill. Like, I'm never going to put that thing in my mouth again. And then you meet somebody else. They haven't picked up the drill in years. But you come to them, you're like, I have a problem. I have a really bad toothache. I got a root canal. I'm like, they pull up that needle. That gigantic needle. And they say, this will make you feel better. I'm good because the tooth hurts so bad. Oh. That, that feels so good. 
I really, really appreciate. I really appreciate how loving and kind you are and how wonderful you have been to me. I feel so at ease. I just feel so, so wonderful and appreciated. And the problem is, you know what the problem is with just only using grace? Is that eventually the grace wears off. And it goes by, a few minutes go by, and a few hours go by, and as much as you appreciate it, eventually, oh my God, my tongue is back, and then my lip is back, and all the pain is back, right? As Christians, we do dose up with grace. We listen well. We draw near. We're Emmanuel. We're, we're the body of Christ near someone. But then once we put the Novocaine in, we say, we're going to have to pull out the drill. We've got to dig out some stuff. We hope you realize there's something that caused you to get here. And that's why the charter of God is to bring both grace and truth to people. And that's why this charter is so unique. All through history, you see some people are good at grace but not truth, or truth but not grace. Some people are good at being generous with their money, but not necessarily being committed in marriage. And some people are really terrible at at loving their brothers who disagree with them. And you can fake one of these, but only when the Spirit of God is in you can the full city of God pour through you when you're living in the city of man. And that's what we are called to do. Paul, or the writer here, ends by saying, that's what I want you to be. I want you to live like resident aliens, integrated into society. And here he gives this very convoluted, hard-to-understand piece. I'll read it, and I'll kind of explain it, because he talks about foods. He goes back, he says, the reason you're having trouble doing it is because some people there are obsessed with foods which have not profited those who've been preoccupied with them. He goes on, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Very dense and opaque. Basically, there was a group of Jewish people at the time who were saying, hey, here's how you live the Christian life. You avoid these foods. These foods are bad. Avoid this food. Avoid that food. And then you'll be acceptable for God. And isolate yourself from those gluttonous Romans by, by just living out in the wilderness and you just eat certain foods. There's another group of Gnostics who are saying, no, no, God doesn't care what you do with your body. Give in to all your pleasures. Give in to all your food. Do whatever you want. Doesn't matter. God doesn't care. Imitate the Romans. The writer here is saying, I don't want you to imitate the Romans, and I don't want you to isolate yourself from the Romans. I want you to integrate knowing that there are things you're going to avoid, just like there were foods in the temple you had to avoid. But we're eating from the temple of God. You want to live your life integrated as if you eat from the temple of what really matters. That's what he's saying here. Therefore, I want you to live this life like you're a resident alien. You reside in heaven. Your citizenship's in heaven, but you're residing here on earth. What would it look like for you and I to live this life we have like we're resident aliens? Therefore, it says, Jesus also... He sanctified. He set you apart for a purpose on earth. Through his blood, he suffered. He got shoved outside the gate. He got reproached. He got persecuted. Therefore, since he was, let us go forth in this life. Sometimes we're outside the camp. Sometimes we're reproached. Sometimes we're persecuted. And when we do that, we're bearing his reproach. We're suffering for him the way he suffered for us. We're just living like residential aliens. I don't belong here. All of my needs and wants are going to be satisfied here. He comes back to the city metaphor. 
For we have no continuing city. Your ultimate needs will not be met here on the city of man. You need to live like a resident alien by seeking the one, the city, to come. Your ultimate priorities, your ultimate value, your ultimate worth comes from the real city that you're home from, that you're designed for, that you're an ambassador for. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise. When you get that you're a resident alien, you live sacrificing. How do I praise God today despite what's come my way? How do I today have the fruit of my lips encourage each other and build other people up and befriend people who disagree with me? How do I give thanks? How do I live a thankful life? All of that comes from the mindset that I'm a resident alien committed to the city of God while living in the city of man. So pick one. Which of those attributes did you feel most convicted by? And you're like, God, I'm doing pretty good at one and three, but not so good at two and four. I've told people, well, I just, I'm really stuck in my ways. I'm not, I'm not really open. I don't take feedback well. Well, guess what? It's time to learn. You know what? I've, I've never really thought about what it means to be faithful in my marriage, and I've let images in my mind or things on the internet or uh, I haven't really had the kind of relationship we've kind of let our, our marriage coast downhill and we're not giving to one another maybe it's time to honor marriage why don't you pick one of those that you would say Holy Spirit how do I live consistent with your kingdom in your city It's a letter I came across. It's just amazing. It's written in the second or third century. It's, it's the Romans describing what Christians were like from their perspective. They marry, as do others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their young, their offspring. They have a common table where everyone's welcome, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they don't live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth... But they're citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws. They're teachable and submissive. At the same time, they surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They're poor, yet they make others rich. They are lack in all things, and yet they abound in all things. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor, they are glorified. They are evil spoken of them, and yet they are justified. They are reviled, and they bless the people who revile them. They are insulted, and they repay insult with honor. Those are people who lived out the city of God in the city of man. Emmanuel, God with us. When we live out the city of God, we become Emmanuel that people can see. Maybe this year, Part of your manual is inviting somebody to one of our services. We're doing nine Christmas Eve services. And maybe you want to invite somebody to come and experience the marvel and Christmas wonder that God came to love us. And pick up tickets now for that. And you invite a friend. Maybe in two weeks, we're going to do all three services are identical. We're going to actually do a time of caroling and scripture reading for the entire hour together, all three services. And maybe this would be a chance for you to kind of get reoriented to the city of God this Christmas and what it means to have God's priorities But let's be people who live like resident aliens. We are Emmanuel because God is with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible challenge 
to live out this new city and these new priorities and this new culture in the midst of the world around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.